0: podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club, with apologies that it's a few hours late. I think I've been using my computer rather more frequently of late and it's showing a few signs of strain, but then again, maybe we all are. After our return visit to the bawdy houses of East Cheap for Henry IV Part Two last week, I figured we would take a few steps further down the ladder to the seedy, startling world of Shakespeare's Vienna for Measure for Measure. According to the folio, this is a comedy. At least it was grouped with the other comedies in that publication. Emma Smith, whose book, This Is Shakespeare, is a terrific and very contemporary introduction to a selection of the plays, sums up how Measure for Measure is like some of the comedies Like Twelfth Night, or A Midsummer Night's Dream, Measure for Measure concludes with multiple marriages. Like As You Like It, or The Two Gentlemen of Verona, it has themes of disguise. Like The Comedy of Errors, it deploys a deus ex machina figure to bring about its final reconciliations. Like The Merchant of Venice, not everyone is happy at the end. Like Much Ado About Nothing, it deals with high-born families and their interactions with comic low-life. Like the Taming of the Shrew, it ends with a woman forced or agreeing to say the opposite of what she previously espoused. Comedy, full square. For all that, this doesn't come across as a particularly funny play. It appears early in the 17th century, very early in the reign of the new King James. Shakespeare's colleagues and contemporaries were by now quite adept at the new genre of city comedy – sharp, sour plays that mocked London's continued expansion into a city full of merchants, prostitutes and money-grabbers. Measure for Measure is about as close to such a play as Shakespeare ever wrote. Certainly the exuberance and madness of Mistress Overdone and her company feel rather more English than Austrian – whatever that meant to Shakespeare – and, as ever, the foreign location was a lens through which Shakespeare could safely observe his fellow Englishmen. Even if it was understood as a comedy, there's no escaping the savagery of the conflict in this play between Angelo and Isabella. As adversaries go, I don't think there are any more shockingly opposed forces in all of Shakespeare. Between them, mind you, they speak only about a quarter of the play's lines. Whenever I think of this play, it's of them that I think, but the duke actually has more lines than these two characters put together. By rights, it really should be his play, but Isabella and Angelo, like an angel and a demon on each of his shoulders, make rather more of an impression. The whole setup of the play is weird. This duke of Vienna is going away. He doesn't really say where he's going or why he's going away, and he leaves Angelo in charge of the city. In fact, his plan is to dress up as a friar and wander among the people, getting a clearer sense of how his city is operating. He's concerned that under his leadership the morality of the city has sagged, and that its strict code of rules and laws is more mocked than feared. These laws are more honoured in the breach than the observance. It's worth bearing in mind that when Shakespeare was writing this, Puritanism was really starting to flourish in England, it's not hard to draw a link between the ever-stricter moralising happening in England, now to be known as Great Britain, and the zeal we see in Angelo. Even his name seems ironic. Angelo is no angel. He's barely in the job a few minutes, of stage time at least, before we hear that a young man is to be executed for having sex outside of marriage. Shakespeare developed the story of this play from a variety of sources, but he alters the young man's situation. In the original story, the man was imprisoned for rape. Shakespeare's invention is to have this young man on trial for having gotten his girlfriend pregnant. The play goes to considerable lengths to tell us that this young couple were due to be married, that everything was mutually committed. They were married already in all but name. Remember, that Shakespeare's own wife was more than likely pregnant when they got married, I get a strong sense that his own story has something to do with the way that he sculpted Claudio's situation. We sympathise with him in a way we certainly would not sympathise with a rapist. He is a victim of a law that does not take into account real life or real circumstances between real people. Of course, Claudio has a sister. Shakespeare also ups the ante of the source material by having Isabella on the verge of becoming a nun. Not only that, she's got a zeal for religious life quite unmatched in Shakespeare. She worries that the notoriously strict votarists of St. Clair won't be strict enough. This is someone whose vocation is deeply felt and deeply personal. Ironically, Isabella and Angelo are rather well matched in their zeal – Angelo for the upholding of these laws, and Isabella for the laws of religious life. She goes to Angelo to plead for her brother Claudio's life, and the most extraordinary thing happens. Angelo, who is almost smug in his proud severity, finds himself dangerously attracted to the young nun-to-be. What's this? What's this? Is this her fault or mine? The tempter or the tempted who sins most? Ha! Not she, nor doth she tempt, but it is I that, lying by the violet in the sun, do as the carrion does, not as the flower, corrupt with virtuous season. Can it be that modesty may more betray our sense than woman's likeness? Having waste ground enough, shall we desire to raise the sanctuary and pitch our evils there? Oh, fie, fie, fie! What dost thou, or what art thou, Angelo? Dost thou desire her foully for those things that make her good? Shakespeare is really playing with fire here. Some scholars believe that Isabella could be read as an allegory for any Catholic trying to live a virtuous life in the Protestant England of the time. No matter what happened, they would have had to face a terrible choice submitting to the rape of Protestantism in order to survive this sounds a little bit dramatic, I think. It's more than provocative enough that Shakespeare makes us in the audience question this young woman's faith and her virtue. Angelo offers to save her brother's life, but only if she will sleep with him. Is someone's life worth more than a nun's virginity? It's a very unsettling question to ask, and we all will have different answers in the dark corners of our minds. Isabella's own response is one of the play's most famous lines. More than our brother is our chastity. She and Claudio have a very difficult scene when she brings him news in prison of this terrible offer. As far as she's concerned, and perhaps there's room for some very grim comedy at the expense of her absolute zeal, she's come to say goodbye. There's no way that she will sleep with Angelo, and so, sorry, brother, your head is on the block. Claudio now has to think very seriously about death, and much of his speech sounds like something like a B-side to Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy. The difference is Claudio very much does not want to die at all. Ay, but to die and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot, this sensible warm motion to become a needed clod and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods or to reside in thrilling region of thick-ribbed ice to be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and in certain thought imagine howling tis too horrible the weariest and most loathed worldly life that age ache penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear in death. Sadly, Isabella won't be moved. Claudio must die. It's really morally confounding to watch this play, because at some level you might think, save your brother's life, what's the big deal? But it's rape, essentially. Angelo wants to sleep with her, or rape her, for the sheer pleasure of exercising his power. The fact that he can deflower a nun excites him. It's unspeakable. Even more twisted, he thinks he'll very likely get away with it. He has, to my mind, one of the most frightening speeches in all of Shakespeare, when he explains to Isabella that nobody will believe her. In the current climate in which rapists are being denounced and facing the consequences of their crimes... It feels even more shocking that Shakespeare could articulate this kind of menace so clearly over four centuries ago. Who will believe thee, Isabel? My unsoiled name, the austereness of my life, my vouch against you, and my place in the state, will so your accusation overweigh that you shall stifle in your own report and smell of calumny. I have begun, and now I give my sensual race the rein. Fit thy consent to my sharp appetite. Lay by all nicety and prolixious blushes that banish what they sue for. Redeem thy brother by yielding up thy body to my will, or else he must not only die the death, but thy unkindness shall his death draw out to lingering sufferance. Answer me to-morrow. Or by the affection that now guides me most, I'll prove a tyrant to him. As for you, say what you can, my false or ways your true. Remember, this is a comedy. The Duke operates almost like a stage manager or even a director for a lot of this play. His disguise as a friar must be remarkably convincing, or else perhaps he's playing on how nobody in Vienna really knows what he looks like. This could be a sly dig from Shakespeare against the new King James, who wasn't too big on engaging with the public. Compared with Elizabeth, who flooded the realm with her likeness so that everyone had a clear idea of who was on the throne, James was practically a recluse. There is a story that James tried to visit the recently built exchange in London to see what it was like, but the plan didn't work and his anonymity could not be guaranteed. Before he reached the English throne, James had written a book called Basilicon Doron, The Royal Gifts, a treatise on governance written to his oldest son. One wonders if Shakespeare had a sense of this as he wrote a play about a tricky monarch who plays at being a man of the people at a time when there's a major swing of the pendulum towards morality and a crackdown on vice. Duke Vincentio is countered by several interesting characters in the play. There's Lucio, a fascinating personality who manages to occupy both the world of the brothels and the world of the court, but who gets punished at the end for speaking too much of his truth to power. He can be played as a braggart, lying constantly, and thinking he's getting away with it, but it's equally interesting if, in fact, everything he says is true. Certainly this makes the stakes rather higher, since what he tells the Duke about himself is all the more stinging a rebuke if it is actually true. Another major match for the Duke is the prisoner Barnardine, who has been in jail for almost a decade but refuses to be executed. In this world of moral rectitude and punishing virtue, Barnardine is quite a glorious rebel. He's a confessed murderer, he drinks all day, and he absolutely refuses to be told what to do. It's not a very big part at all, but I think it's critical. Even in this most repressive, pent-up, puritanical world, Shakespeare gives us a little revolutionary, a human being who insists on living on his own terms and, like I said, he even refuses to be executed. I swear, he says, I will not die today for any man's persuasion. By the time we reach the convoluted end of all of this, Barnardine is pardoned. Any actor playing the Duke will need to have incredible resources of energy for the final act of the play, in which he switches back and forth between his own clothing and his friary disguise, The Duke engineers a variety of plots and schemes. He manages to find a woman called Mariana, who was Angelo's former fiancé. With her help, he and Isabella set up a bed trick and make Angelo believe that he is sleeping with Isabella, when in fact it's his former girlfriend. Even the ethics of this are quite questionable. What do we call it when a woman has sex with a man against his will or without his awareness? It's a problem we'll encounter in other plays too. Despite thinking that he slept with Isabella, Angelo sends word for Claudio to be executed regardless. The Duke is in on that case too and manages to get a spare head from the prison of a conveniently dead other prisoner since Barnardine refuses to cooperate. The Duke makes Isabella believe that Claudio is dead. It seems a little cruel of him to do so, mean, hasn't she suffered enough? But it does set the scene for the most extraordinary moment of the play. When the Duke reveals himself, and everyone is left feeling very sheepish for their bad behaviour, he insists that Angelo marry Mariana, primarily so that she can inherit all of his estate, because he then sentences Angelo to death for having essentially murdered Claudio. This way, Mariana, who has been so helpful, can buy herself a better husband. However, Mariana begs for Angelo's life, and Isabella speaks up for him. It's a startling moment of forgiveness. I won't say that I understand it, because Angelo really is beyond contempt. But that's how powerful forgiveness can be. We don't have to understand it but we can be moved by it when we see it, and I think that's what Shakespeare stages here. Angelo does get his life spared, and Claudio is revealed, alive. This desperately strange play isn't finished with us yet. The Duke punishes the motor-mouth Lucio by making him marry a prostitute, and lest we feel there aren't enough marriages at the end of this comedy, he proposes to Isabella, remember, the nun in training, himself. Remarkably, Shakespeare does not let her answer this proposal. Isabella gets no more lines in the play after she speaks for Angelo. She doesn't get to say yes or no. It's all down to a given production how this might be interpreted. How do you feel she should answer? Does this bonkers play deserve a happy ending? There's one more thing to think about. Bear in mind that Measure for Measure was written very soon after Hamlet remember what Hamlet says and does to Ophelia. He dismisses her and tells her to go to a nunnery. In that instance, Shakespeare is playing with the slang that a nunnery was a whorehouse. In this Vienna of jades and pimps and Pompey bum and Kate keep down, poor Isabella is the lotus trying to bloom in the mud. But even she, this would-be paragon of virginity and of chastity, is too absolute, too precise in her opinions. The issues of consent, of choice, of judgment in this play still feel terribly relevant. The smugness of those who would police and judge the private lives of others has not gone away, nor too has the delight we take when, as so often happens, those who shout the loudest from their high horses are revealed to be the seediest and most depraved in their private lives. Angelo and Isabella are both far too proud of their self-imposed strictures. It really feels to me like Shakespeare wants us to be a little more compassionate. We are all living in this seedy, busy world, whether it's Vienna or wherever we find ourselves. We should live on our own terms, like the irrepressible Barnardine. We should fear death and relish life, as Claudio does, particularly when he's afraid he's going to lose it. And we should try, try to forgive and maybe judge a little less, as Isabella learns to do. Measure for Measure is one of the less frequently performed of Shakespeare's plays, and these are going to be the focus for much of the next month of book club explorations. Next week we'll read King John, which is very rarely done indeed. If you've seen Robin Hood, you already know some of its characters, and there are plenty more to meet. Have a read of it, and I'll speak to you next week.